Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? The greatest boss has Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the Decoding the Gurus guys finally released their episode with us, and now I'm getting hassled by people mad at me for questioning mask policies and like not pleasuring myself to Anthony Fauci briefings. <laughs> Is it finally time for me to start my own Substack? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, you, you could. You could start a Substack devoted to... What I'm guessing, based on your uh, performance on Decoding the Gurus, would be uh, Joe Rogan fan uh, <laughs> fiction. Um, <laughs> like Joe Rogan <laughs> Scooby-Doo. Yeah, exactly. Joe Rogan Scooby-Doo with no masks, because even, <laughs> even wearing a mask for a disguise would clearly be against your libertarian policies, because <laughs> it might prevent COVID by mistake. <laughs> And then, uh, and then I don't know. One dedicated how to how easily uh, you give up the freedoms of <laughs> American citizens. Uh, the, the Rogan thing is funny because I'm the only one of all of you guys who actually doesn't listen and never has listened to Joe Rogan. <laughs> it was amazing that you were defending him, and, and I was like, wait, of all of the four of us, clearly I actually watch Rogan way more than, than <laughs> yeah, you they, like, like they watch it for like work, you know. But it was a fun episode. Uh, it know, was. Um, uh, yeah. Even though you clearly couldn't stop fawning over Kirsten Dunst and wait, um, what? <laughs> fawning over Kirsten Dunst in uh, the decoding the gurus episode? She's not oh, in no, the master. No, yeah, no. Who were they saying in the master? Who were they saying that you were making jokes about hand jobs? Oh, Amy Adams. That wasn't me though. Who was making? Was it me? <laughs> I think it was you. Yeah. I have no memory. <laughs> Uh, well, see, there you go. This is how professionals do it. We record and we forget. And, and we then don't. we only learn what we said when the Twitter backlash happens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, we have a very special guest for the second segment to talk about the first season of Severance. Paul yes. Bloom. It's yeah. almost like he's not a special guest. He's just a regular guest. But but Paul is not joining us for this segment. Oh, I, don't, I don't know why. I really don't know why. Because as, as someone who fancies himself an evolutionary psychologist, I would have thought that he would want to jump in to discuss this article. The paper in the top evolutionary psychology journal, right? Um, <laughs> I actually don't know what the top <laughs> I, I googled like top evolutionary psychology <laughs> journal, and it appears to be this one, <laughs> uh, at least according to some metrics. Um, but yeah, this is a paper called The Effect of Female Orgasm Frequency on Female Mate Selection, a Test of two hypotheses. See, science falsifying hypotheses. I don't know. <laughs> it's what, just I don't like know. Daniel Aikens approved. 
I, I can't wait to talk about this, but I, I first I thought this was, I think I texted you, maybe the quintessential evolutionary psychology study, like the platonic like, form of... Right, uh, in the cave. It's in it, the cave. The, no, the, it's, it's like... casting I'm, a shadow. It's casting its big it's, shadow. I emerged from the cave and saw <laughs> like the true form of an Evo psych study just by... It's um, true. It's like an algorithm that generated an Evo psych topic. <laughs> but it's, but then I thought like, it's actually maybe not because it's it's more like what if we combined all the problems and obsessions of evolutionary psychology research with all the problems of social psychology experimental exactly. methodology? I, I, I must admit that uh, <laughs> I thought something very similar. So, yes, yeah, so this is an article uh, attempting to, to test some theories about the evolution of female orgasm. And so... The background really is that pe people have talked about female orgasm and whether or not it might have an evolutionary function because... Since the dawn of time, people since have the been dawn of time, people have been wondering. Because, you know, you could say very clearly that the male orgasm, in as much as it's tied to ejaculation, plays a role in uh, promoting reproduction. Big role. You know, yeah. Big role. It's like probably the most important thing, you know, yeah. getting. <laughs> but uh, the the function of the female orgasm, the mythical female orgasm, <laughs> is. Which, yeah, is, <laughs> supposedly exists. And, uh, right. Yeah. Is, uh, so this is actually, you you shared with me this write up in SciPost. Well, because it was Reddit. This, this came to oh, us okay. from Reddit. Okay. This author, Main Kara Yakubian, says. While the male orgasm is necessary for sexual reproduction, the female orgasm is not. Thus, some scholars have argued that the female orgasm is unlikely to be an adaptation, but rather the evolutionary byproduct of the male orgasm. Others have emphasized the adaptive benefits of the female orgasm. Why would it be the evolutionary byproduct of the male orgasm? Well, so that the idea is that because we have just, we share physiology in as much as, you know, the in utero, for instance, the fetus develops what is the clitoris turns into the tip of the penis and all of the wiring is sort okay. of there. So to the extent that you wired, that evolution wired orgasm into males, it would just come along for females. They just got it for free. Exactly. Right. Yeah. They didn't have to do all the work of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, so these authors, the one step they take is let's just say that it's an adaptation. Let's discard the byproduct and let's see, Right. If it serves a function to the extent that it does, which function would it serve? And so they pit two hypotheses about the function against each other. Uh, yeah. So the Mr. Right hypothesis, which I'll just read from their paper, from the article. According to the Mr. Right hypothesis, females use a male's ability to bring her to orgasm as a piece of information that helps her decide his value as a long-term mate. A male's ability to bring a female to orgasm may function as a signal of his care and concern for the female's needs and desires. Thus, by caring enough to address a female's emotional and sexual needs, a male may also be demonstrating his more general willingness to stay with her, in, uh, invest in her, and invest her offspring. So that's a kind of standard kind of evolutionary psychology hypothesis. It's like, yeah. oh, well, that's just about the investment, the parental investment. But then I love this next little bit. The main evidence in support of the Mr. Right hypothesis for female <laughs> orgasm comes from Gallup et al. 2014, who found that partner family income predicted female orgasm frequency, which was still true after controlling for the partner attractiveness. So like, what? <laughs> How, how would that be evidence for what they said? 
Like, what does the income have to do with it? <laughs> There's a piece missing in in that being evidence for the Mr. Right hypothesis. Right. The the leap, I guess, is that. So, as you say, male parental investment in all of these sexual selection sort of studies is, is thought to play a big role. And so the female has to choose between, um, so in short-term mating, you could go for like the good looks and the good genetics, but in long-term mating, what you really want is the male to stick around to provide for resources and time and protection for the offspring because that way your offspring has a greater chance of surviving and reproducing themselves. And so I think the link is just being a good provider. So, so to the extent that the man has more money, the woman is secure that her offspring will have a shot at success. And I'm just trying somehow, to and, <laughs> without and, endorsement. <laughs> and somehow the, the orgasm is a signal I, I guess because there's no income in the environment of evolutionary adaptedness, as they like <laughs> to say, right? Like, it, not in that sense. So it's, yeah, I, I still not totally getting it. Like, no, it's because it's because it feels very like a very hand wavy, tenuous relationships. I guess the idea is that there would be a correlation between males who are good at providing. Yeah. like resources and males who yeah. are good at giving you orgasms. So to the extent that the ability to give you an orgasm as a, to the extent that it signals um, your underlying parental investment, then I guess good, good parental investment males would also be good at, at orgasms. It's still not clear to me that that would at all be a mechanism by which you get to learn about their parental investment. But all Gordon right. Gallup, the guy who the guy who wrote that article, I guess, is is the guy who famously uh, <laughs> he famously did these studies where he created uh, dildos of different shapes to see what kind of penis shape would be most efficient at scooping out rival oh, yeah. male semen. We've talked about that, right? <laughs> yeah, or you've yeah. mentioned it before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, so then, so that's one hypothesis, and you might think that's so plausible you don't even need to consider another one, yeah, yeah. but <laughs> there is another one, the long-term pair bonding hypothesis. Yeah, so the long-term pair bonding hypothesis would predict, according to them, that orgasm functions to promote a female's commitment to a relationship partner by promoting emotional bonding with and attachment oh, to him. So while, according to the Mr. Right hypothesis, the relationship between female orgasm and mate selection is the male's demonstrating care and commitment, so like yeah, using yeah, that yeah. as a signal, according to the long-term pair bonding hypothesis, this relationship is mediated by the female's feelings of attachment and closeness to her mate. So, so it's a way to get her to commit more to somebody... Yeah, I guess. The, the, uh, so they, they build on this work on oxytocin, um, the, the hormone that is, that is, among other things, plays a role in, in attachment and bonding. And because uh, oxytocin is released um, during all kinds of touch, but especially during sex and orgasm, that it would help solidify the relationship with a long-term partner. So it's still... It's still, I think, that the sexual selection that's happening is the the female trying to secure a partner who is good at long-term investment. It's just that in the first case, the Mr. Right hypothesis, they're trying to suss out who would be a good uh, long-term partner. And in the long-term pair bonding hypothesis, it's that they are they are uh, trying to convince actually, themselves. 
Yeah, or like manipulating the relationship into staying, like manipulating the partner through the release of oxytocin into being a a long-term partner by sticking around. Oh, so it's like uh, like a black widow kind of. Uh, <laughs> right, it's like a exactly shooting like a, poison into the to the man, which is like what it means when you right. So the, to somebody the, you're essentially dying. So yeah. the idea, I I think this is all just not very fleshed out. Um, <laughs> but the idea I think is that when you have an orgasm as a female, the male gives you an orgasm, you release oxytocin, which leads him to want to stick around more. So to the extent that a female can have orgasms, she is more likely to have the male stick around. That seems so like an selected. inefficient way to <laughs> release a little oxytocin. Like, well, but I mean, you can argue with the science because let's talk about how they tested it. <laughs> well, well, before we get there, the, like yeah. just like the oxy on the oxytocin thing, they say. Animal research, both with prairie voles and non-human primates, suggests that oxytocin is involved in mating and mate bonding. Is that what this is dependent on? Some like prairie vole study? Well, like, do they not have is, an ability to to test that with humans? There is a huge literature on oxytocin in all kinds of animals. The reason that prairie voles um, are kind of like one of the central. Uh, models for oxytocin is that these prairie voles, this particular uh, species, they have long-term bonding. And so we mm. could look at their brains and how oxytocin is being used. Okay. And, and, you know, it's not easy to find long-term pair bonding mammals that you can easily like crack into their brains without any, <laughs> without any real. On behalf um, of Homo sapiens, I'd like to apologize to the prairie vole <laughs> species for, they're just fucking minding their own business. And now all of a sudden they're just captured and bred to like see what like they're, <laughs> oxytocin releases during and what is yeah i honestly like the fact that that's a hypothesis and and both of those are hypotheses that have that evidence in support of them is just kind of mind-boggling but okay yeah let's talk about the studies that they right so so the the broad methodology here was to get a bunch of undergraduate women 175 heterosexual female undergrad students at bowling green state university with an um, average age of 19, by yeah. the way. The way that they tested this was to create a series of vignettes describing a relationship, like really brief, and ask the women to pretend that this was their relationship. Right. So what they manipulated was how that relationship was described. Was it a short or a long-term relationship? And then how frequent orgasms happened in this relationship. So participants read a hypothetical scenario describing their relationship with a man named Michael. The short-term condition outlined a (laughs) one-month relationship, while the long-term condition referred to a one-year relationship. Following some general details about the relationship, (laughs) such as where they met, participants then read about the sexual nature of the relationship. For instance, in your relationship with Michael, you either never occasionally or almost always experience an orgasm, which is just a weird piece of information to include. By the way, pretend you're in a relationship with Michael. You guys had uh, a romantic evening at a spaghetti factory and watched a rom-com, and now you've been fucking him for a month and you always have orgasms. Right. <laughs> just... <laughs> That's it. And also assuming that a lot of these girls have never been in a one-year relationship, right? Um wait, why? Because they're 19. But but you're 
you're somehow not you're failing to take into account the power the power of the imagination um, sure. to just to just pretend you've been in a one year relationship. <laughs> right. Um, of course, you're going to know uh, what that's like. So then, okay. So then they included questions about a male partner's commitment and relationship satisfaction. So things like, how much do you think Michael cares about you? How passionate is your relationship with Michael? And then they also uh, took one of these assessments of whether they were more oriented towards short-term mating or long-term mating and whether or not they had had a lot of orgasms in their life, (laughs) how easy it was. And so what they found was that female orgasm, the way they even talk about this, they found that female orgasm was associated with greater relationship satisfaction and a longer expected relationship duration in both the short and long-term relationships context. When they actually found <laughs> was just that if you ask women to think about being in a one-month or one-year relationship and you've told them that you had either a lot of orgasms or very few, <laughs> that they're inferring that their relationship might be good. Which they're inferring they might want to stay with the guy that like always gives them orgasms over the one that like when like that's almost all you've told them about him like that's almost (laughs) the only piece of information they have would you like who in their right mind would be like no 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 i prefer much like i prefer michael when he doesn't give me any orgasms like that's so weird okay so female orgasm uh women's perception of their partner's commitment did not explain the association between orgasm frequency and relationship satisfaction or uh, uh, that's bad news for one of the hypotheses. Maybe. <laughs> the Mr. Right hypothesis has been discarded. Oh, man. Um, so think, they believe that this is evidence for the long-term mate, mate choice hypothesis of female orgasm, that uh, what orgasms do is they promote long-term pair bonds. Right. They don't just signal that a guy might stay with you for a long time. Right. It's like this little like mist, like mind control gas that just goes into the guy <laughs> to try to convince him to stay. It's a magical power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. And because they because these 19-year-olds didn't predict that the, the that necessarily the guy would want to stay with them, maybe yeah. because like this guy knows how to fuck, right? Like so like <laughs> <laughs> but you know, somehow intuitively perceive that there are so there are so many leaps that have to be made to consider this evidence for anything that like, once again, it just perplexes me that this kind of stuff is being published and it can only happen in a community that it's so insular that they've all agreed that none of these are problems. And, and they like fail to see the issue here. And it's, I mean like what that's, that's true in a lot of fields though, right? Like we have, we have this in our own fields too, but it's just maybe not quite as glaring feels like, just perplexing and obvious that this would be, I, I guess, so, so I guess it happens everywhere, but. Let me ask a naive question and you be the <laughs> evolutionary psychologist answering this question. Okay. So in my understanding of evolutionary psychology and their just general kind of foundation of what they believe is a lot of this stuff is adaptive in the evolutionary, you know, environment and we did which we did most of our evolving in, which was two to three hundred thousand years ago in the African savanna, the, the Pleistocene, right? Like yeah. That's what they say. So 
that allows them to sort of explain certain discrepancies between like how we act right now versus how we act there. And like now, like why, why do we love cake? Why do we love ice cream right. when it's actually bad for us? But in the evolutionary of environmental adaptiveness or whatever, in the Pleistocene, like there was no ice cream, but there were berries, which had good, you know, nutrients. Right. Exactly. Why so, then do they think that a lot of this stuff for this, something as physiological as an orgasm, would would carry over to the point where like 19-year-old Bowling Green students are going to be able to give you a, a sense of what our hunter-gatherer ancestors... Yeah, and no, there no, may be an answer to this, but it's just like normally I'm used to them talking about, you know, how our environment today is so not like the environment uh, then that like we can't map it in the way that they seem to want to map it here where it's like, oh, this guy's going to stick around. This guy's going to like right. it wouldn't be like that anymore. So th that's a uh, it's a good question. And I think the answer that they would try to give is something like I, there's a couple of questions that I, I heard in there, but but. One would be that the first thing that you described, like liking berries because they're sweet and have uh, nutritional value, and now we could just go to 7-Eleven and get Twinkies. Um, our environment really has changed a great deal. So we can look at our perplexing current behavior, and if we can understand it based on the EEA, um, then, uh, then that can help explain why we have this current perplexing behavior. No, Which now that the environment has, yeah. yeah. Um I think that what they want to argue here, because this this whole sort of like um subfield of this kind of evolutionary psychology that's focused on sexual selection wants to argue that that has been a stable evolutionary pressure for this whole time. So while our our environments have changed quite a bit in terms of things like nutrition and survival, like whatever, you know, predation. Um, we've always been faced with the problem of having to choose which mate would be um, the better mate, especially the females. Sure, but there's no way that... Like I'm so maybe this, okay, this the second thing that... Okay, because I, this might be what you're getting at. The second thing yeah. that I thought you might be asking is why young women would have any insight into this in their in their right, it wouldn't be transparent to them especially no, when we're right. talking about uh orgasms like they wouldn't know that that's what's going on right right and i i think that's right and what was the last crazy evo psych thing that we discussed mm. do you remember no yeah, i don't remember but i remember having this discussion which is what is the um what is the the theory of what's going on in the mind of the person making this judgment i yeah. think that here they w would like to say, oh, the the way that this is that this works is it's ingrained itself into female selection behavior, and and what we're doing is assessing intuitions, much might, like you might assess whatever heuristics and biases, and so without even knowing explicitly what's going on, the young women have this sense having orgasms can lead to better long-term partners like we're like in a in a cool surreptitious way assessing like the that the evolved mental mechanism Again, i guess but, it's because they are yeah just intuitively recognizing that okay 
Yeah, well, that's good. You steel manned it. I, <laughs> I do think, though, that it's weird that, that it would map on so well, like to something so modern, like dating habits of college kids. I mean, there's so, yeah, I totally there's so agree. many. Like, and there's this so, is this the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this yeah. is, uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> just um, the tip. <laughs> the, uh, what really bugs me about this is. Um, among other things, is also th- this huge assumption that this could in any way provide evidence for natural selection to have given, physiologically to have given females orgasms. Right. It's, like, it's one thing to say... <laughs> right, I had this... Right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, how does that work? Like, how exactly did it... It's true. Why, why isn't the more parsimonious... Okay, let me give an example. Imagine that I said, for men who opened the car door for women... Yeah. Um, they they do so because women are looking for uh, signals that this guy is going to take care of them in the long term. Mm-hmm. And opening the car door uh, shows that you're the kind of guy who really will look out for them. Now, imagine I said, that's why we evolved the car opening. That's why men evolved the car door opening behavior. <laughs> You'd be like, well, how does that work exactly? Like, how did that get in there in, yeah, into right. our brains? No, like exactly. Like how, like, so in the case, so applying what you just said to like the orgasm is, is the idea that the, you know, cause like you don't just mutate from no orgasm to <laughs> complete orgasm. Right. So right. it would have to be this very gradual, but still very effective you know, directional thing where the the women who are just like giving off like just a little closer to an orgasm or something like that, I guess maybe the oxytocin, you know, just giving off a little bit, you know, they just do a little better, a little better, a little better until finally you just have right. orgasm. You would, wa- you would just want though, you know, like I, there's all kinds of questions physiologically. Like we know right. that just yeah. any contact, any physical contact yeah. um, will release oxytocin. So you would want to say that like orgasm gives such a boost that um, that this is doing some good work explaining why people bond with each other and that it would that the peop, that the women who were doing this just a little more than the other women would have more offspring I guess because the, <laughs> because the because the men stuck around longer men stuck around yeah but as you said early on like if the guy is really good at giving orgasms he's just gonna go around to doing that to a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> so why it counts in any way as evidence, that women think that a guy who gives you orgasms is a good thing? Like, why that would count as evidence for the evolve, the evolution of the female orgasm? Never mind, like, a specific hypothesis about (laughs) the evolution. And they, you know, in the the very, like, the penultimate paragraph or, like, the third last paragraph, they have um, a section called Evolved Function Versus Benefit. And so they say... However, this study simply shows that female orgasm may provide a benefit to women by promoting long-term relationships, if it does even that. It does not necessarily mean that this is the evolved function of the female orgasm. For instance, it is, for example, it is possible that the female orgasm exists as a byproduct, as discussed previously, but as a byproduct happens to benefit women by promoting feelings of love and affection. Well, yeah. How is like a hypothetical orgasm study just not, not completely just that? Like I've just told that. you nothing other than that this guy gives you a lot of orgasms. Right. Do you think you want to be in a long-term relationship with? Do you think it'll be good? Do you well, think I it'll guess. be like right? Like, <laughs> it's, it seems like you've the only information you've given me is that this guy is paying enough attention to me that he's going to give me regular orgasms. And now I'm asking you, do you think this guy wants to pay a lot of attention to you? But yeah, they say yeah. differentiating between female orgasm as an adaptation or a byproduct of male orgasm would require future research. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, no, the, the, the main thing I think with this study is to just see if it replicates for, you know, like 19 year olds at Ohio state maybe, or at like Miami of <laughs> Ohio, like, you know, I, you like, know, I, I just want to like highlight again what this finding was because it's ludicrous. Yeah. The only thing that they found was that if you tell women, yep. college girls that a relationship, this hypothetical relationship involve, involves more orgasms, they say that they would be more satisfied than one that involves fewer orgasms. Yeah. That's it. That's, That's it. absolutely it. And now and just to now, like highlight that, like, I don't know, have you been to Bowling Green? No. <laughs> like it's it's not a nice part of the country. <laughs> to, why are you being so mean to Bowling Green? <laughs> well, I just want like this is like that's about as good as you're gonna get. As another way of saying it, insert anything positive about a man's behavior in a relationship and right. ask the same exact questions and tell me you're not going to find the same fucking thing. Like he cleans the kitchen once a week or he never cleans the kitchen or he cleans the kitchen every time that you cook. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'd be happier with a guy who's always cleaning. Mm. Boom. Evolutionary evidence. Boom. I don't know. They, they might think he was kind of a bitch. Yeah, well, he's a cuck. That guy's definitely <laughs> cuck. a cuck. He's a total cuck. <laughs> like, I think I say this all the time, but I do, like, this is a particular kind of evolutionary psychology that is unfortunately... This is a way to meet 19-year-old girls. <laughs> it's not enough to be just a professor. <laughs> um, uh, like, there's a lot of people who would consider themselves evolutionary psychologists who don't do this weird sexual selection like weak ass, like serious weak sauce methodology stuff. Like, you know. Do they reckon with this stuff in evolutionary psychology? Like, or has just all the people who would be inclined to try to reckon with this just left and now you have only the true believers remaining? That's a good question. I don't, I don't, you know, the right answer to that, but we get a, a bit of a hint, I think, when we talk to people like Paul Bloom who really are sold on the, idea that understanding evolution can explain large swaths of the human mind and including social stuff. They I feel like there is a little bit of tribalism going on where they don't want to just throw these people under the bus because they have an understanding that, well, we're all kind of trying to, to, to sell the same story about the importance of evolution on the mind. Yeah. But, uh, but the people like, for instance, in my department who do evolutionary biology, um, and they say study the neural mechanisms of social behavior in birds or in voles. These people couldn't be farther away from the the, the article that we just read. Like they they wouldn't even this wouldn't even cross their mind as a plausible way to study uh, the evolution of, of the mind like that. So I, this is more like a social psychology, like you said. It's like taking a little bit of column A, which is bad social psych, and a little bit of column B, which is an evolutionary understanding. <laughs> but but it seems mind. like, you know, like, so what he says is the proximate mechanisms, like, that is something famously that they don't really tackle. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard to emphasize enough how there is absolutely no <laughs> explanation as to how this would work, that you would evolve gradually or suddenly. Yeah. Um, the trait of having more frequent orgasms and how that would have evolutionary benefits. It is purely just like, this is our theory. This is, you know, but there's no, th th there's absolutely nothing that shows how that would work. There's no sense of at the, just the base ph physiological genetic level, how yeah. that, how that would happen. Well, and, and 
I read I read this paper. I didn't read it closely, but you know, one thing you could ask is what is the the prevalence of orgasm in non-human females um, across? Right. You could really do comparative work trying to understand, like, to the extent that orgasm is adaptive for for any female of the stageless mammals. Then, do you see it in other animals? Are um, these prairie voles just getting like? made to like fuck each other until they like <laughs> pretty, pretty scientists much. can determine whether they're having orgasms or not they they well the next step is to still give them little cars and stuff and see if they open doors <laughs> <laughs> leave the prairie voles alone like don't <laughs> drag them into whatever like kind of bankrupt to be fair research. we don't they don't always kill them uh, <laughs> Yeah, but they're like they're like minding their own business on the prairie. Uh, I, I also think like you know like what you would really want if this was a I don't know intellectually serious kind of hypothesis is if it's going to be the oxytocin explanation, then you would also want to know whether like the orgasm is the most efficient way of emitting oxytocin um, under those yeah, kinds of yeah. circumstances versus some other way, some other kind of, you know, because it sounds like at least the research that they're quoting, it's just other animals release oxytocin when they have sex, but like they're all, everybody's having sex. The question is whether the the, the orgasm makes a difference um, yeah. when it comes. And if it does, is there like why that way instead of another way? Right. So and no, yeah. absolutely. You would want, and it's hard to do in, in humans because if you really want to see, I mean, so you could try to, to measure um, blood levels of oxytocin, but brain levels of oxytocin, my understanding is uh, aren't necessarily one-to-one mapped with, with blood levels of oxytocin. And so, so it's kind of hard to, to get good data on the neuropeptides action in the brain. But by, by the way, I found an answer to, um, oh, the question of, or, yeah. yeah, all female. So this is, I'll put a link to this, just like Q and a all female mammals have a clitoris. The sole purpose of which is to react to sexual stimulation. And presumably this stimulation has evolved to be pleasurable for most species, but establishing whether sexual pleasure ever actually tips over into orgasm is hard. Female chimps, macaque monkeys, and cows have all been stimulated in the lab to the point of experiencing vaginal and uterine contractions, which does suggest that other female animals are at least capable of orgasm. Whether they regularly have them during normal copulation is much less certain. Most animal sex is very brief and often quite violent. That's terrible. That's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Uh, this makes me sad. That made me sad. <laughs> For the cows, <laughs> yeah, brief and I feel bad for the cows like, in the lab getting stimulated by a fucking like why like poor if grad never, or postdoc. If they've like, never had an orgasm in real life, man, and you bring them into lab and you have a student know. just like rub one out for them, like how are great we is that? sure that they're like not just shuddering <laughs> in a like disgust? <laughs> no, but. I'm willing to take the risk. <laughs> Beyond mammals, the case for a female orgasm is more tenuous. Reptiles have penetrative sex and presumably would benefit from orgasms just as much as mammals, but I don't think anyone has ever tried to detect the female orgasm in a crocodile or snake. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that it's just like, it's not like offensive to say it's a byproduct. I, look, look, if it's made of the same stuff as as what turns into a penis in utero, then it just seems like to the extent that orgasms exist in women, it's just the same mechanism. I, I don't understand why that's like not just the default hypothesis. It's like, why do men have nipples? Because women have nipples. Like, that's right. it. 
right? Like, yeah, not to get piercings, like or whatever. Because piercings show that you're that you're uh, super down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, I, I like this though, like to try to promote like a moral purpose for this research. Um, Nibble says in the interview, orgasm is highly variable between females, and many females struggle with the difficulty <laughs> or of or, or inability to achieve orgasm. It's like trying to be sensitive, but at the same time, just like you're just females. Uh, <laughs> Struggling with sexual satisfaction affects relationship satisfaction and overall satisfaction and can be distressing even lead to self-blame Nebby told Cypost the exact adaptive function of female orgasm might not be that important to people outside the field but I do do think that knowledge that variability in female orgasms may be by evolutionary design rather than being evidence of dysfunction may provide some <laughs> solace to women struggling with, with their s- sexual satisfaction what I don't Hold on. Let Who me said it was dysfunction in the first place? Aren't like you what? Knowledge of variability. First of all, this doesn't make any sense. Oh my god. Okay. So th- they're they're saying like, look, the reason that some chicks don't have orgasms. I'm sorry, some women don't have orgasms is females. Uh, some females don't have orgasms is because. Uh, the variability, understand, the variability is what makes this so like evolutionarily powerful, right? So it's like um, somehow being deployed selectively to keep the right long-term mates. Except that what if like you were with a, like a long, you know, you've been married for like 12 years happily and mm-hmm. like you're never, you never had an orgasm and, and then it's like, but oh no, that's okay because you're very like women were meant to have orgasms so they could be with the right person. It's like, well, why am I not having orgasms? I'm with the right person. It's like, do they I say mean, like, really you're you? just an evolutionary accident because, right. because if that, how would this be consolation? How, like rather than evidence of dysfunction, it's, it's, it's by design, but it's not working no. as by evolutionary design. Like it's, it's fucked up the design. Wait, yeah, no, you're so totally, it is dysfunction then. Well, but you're okay. totally right in that. Like, this is like a actually, such a hand wavy, like trying to tie this back to some sort of like social good (laughs) where it's like, actually what you're saying is that those women must not really be trying to keep their uh, mates sticking around. (laughs) Exactly. So like, how does that feel any better? Or, uh, they're just not with the right guy. They're not with the right guy. Just like break up with them. Like, and literally all of this, all of this just boils down to this question like if i tell you that you had more orgasms in a relationship do you think that relationship is better that's it because 190 female 19 year olds in (laughs) bowling green said that they thought that you know like michael who gives more orgasms you probably want to stay with him two things really we really need to know if there's any other name for which this works um (laughs) You know. I do think that, because there's the biblical kind of connotations, <laughs> like the Night Rider, <laughs> warmed the seat for you, Michael. Oh man, it's good stuff. All right, uh, we'll be right back to talk with Paul Bloom about severance. Today's episode is brought to you by GiveWell.org. GiveWell. One of our f- absolute favorite sponsors, and this is a different kind of spot today. Um, they're looking to fill a position of content editor. 
Finding the most evidence-backed, cost-effective charities is hard, and the amount of information can be over overwhelming, and errors in research can change which charities receive funding and which ones don't. So if you want an impactful career and you're up for the challenge, consider applying to be a content editor at GiveWell. You know, Dave, we... Uh, received an email from somebody who, not because we read an ad, but because they, um, you know, heard us talk about GiveWell, and then they ended up getting a job there, and yeah. now that's where they work. So incredible! Uh, it's 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 amazing. This sounds like a good opportunity. If if you're part of the Great Resignation, and you recently <laughs> quit your job, this would be a great uh, new direction to turn to. Absolutely. Uh, GiveWell is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to finding the best giving opportunities to help donors decide where to give. Each year, thousands of donors trust GiveWell to direct hundreds of millions of dollars to the programs GiveWell has found to save or improve lives the most per dollar. This includes programs that distribute medicine to prevent malaria, cash incentives to promote vaccinations, and treatments for parasitic worm infections. GiveWell wants all donors to have access to free, high-quality information about giving. And that's where the content editors come in. They're responsible for writing, vetting, and publishing this research so that anyone can access it. So if you'd be excited to apply your writing skills and keen attention to detail, that rules me out, to help identify the best charities and help make GiveWell's research available to the public, check out givewell.org slash editors. Salary starts at $75,000 and staff can work either remotely or from GiveWell's office in the San Francisco Bay Area. This sounds awesome. Again, that really that's does. givewell.org slash editors. Thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time during the episode that we always take a moment to thank the people who get in touch with us, who interact with us and with the rest of the Very Bad Wizards community. I think we can say that there is a Very Bad Wizards community and uh, it's really fun to be a part of it. Um, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read every email and respond to a, a select few that are just <laughs> some subset of all those that we read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, almost arbitrarily, I would say. It oh, absolutely. A, arbitrarily. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can uh, tweet at us at Tamler at peas or at very bad wizards. I had a couple of really rewarding exchanges. Um, 
with people on the Gurus episode. Um, yeah, are you you're being sarcastic? <laughs> <laughs> I was. Okay, good. Can't you always up, tell. You, pick, you picked up on that. That's good. <laughs> um, you can join the Reddit community. Um, on the, the I guess uh, it was a little more abundant uh, a few weeks ago, but it's picked up a little bit. I like that we got a lot of answers as to whether herbs grow on trees. Oh, did we? I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah. I learned, <laughs> I learned quite a bit about that. Uh, bay leaves apparently grow on trees, which makes sense. Um, and there's a bunch of other ones. I mean, I just skimmed through it, but uh, yeah. That's funny. It's good, it's good to know. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, uh, like us on Facebook. And one of the things we really appreciate is if you give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that helps us reach new audiences as as our as a small sliver or maybe a large sliver of our audience gets sick of us we can <laughs> uh, we can reach out to new people so um yeah thank you so much um is there anything that i missed spotify spotify yeah subscribe to us on spotify even if you don't listen to us on spotify just subscribe to us. And if you want to support us in more tangible ways, we always appreciate that. Thank you so much to to people who have um, gone out of their way to, I don't know, help keep us keep us going. Both keep the lights on, but also keep us uh, keep our spirits high enough to continue recording sometimes. We really appreciate the generosity uh, of our listeners. You can support us by just going to you can see all the ways by going to our Very Bad Wizards support page, verybadwizards.com. You can click on support there. You can give us a one-time donation on, or a recurring donation on PayPal. We very much appreciate it. Um, or you can become one of our patron Patreon supporters, which we also very much appreciate. And if you do become our Patreon supporter, there are always perks that you get from your membership. Um, if you become a one dollar and up subscriber, you get all of our ad-free episodes, and you get my beats. And I'm, I'm. I'd like to announce, Tamler, that I've I've finally completed my Beats Without Rhymes Volume Six. Wow. I just need some art. I know. I just need some art. Cool. If you are two dollar and up supporter, you get all of our bonus segments. You also get the monthly Ask Us Anything audios. Feel free to suggest bonus segments. Bonus anyway. content. Yeah. Um, yeah, you get to ask us anything. $5 and up, you get to vote on an episode topic um, for our twice a year listener selected episode. Um, you also get access to our Brothers Karamazov uh, series, our five part series. You get access to a couple of videos, my intro psych lectures, Tamler's lectures on Plato Symposium. I'm thinking of doing more lectures for it specifically, oh, cool. actually. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Just announce that publicly as a kind of commitment device for myself. Um, Finally, $10 and up, you get our monthly Ask Us Anything on the day that we record, on the the month that we record them, and you get the video version of those, video and audio. And you get to Um, ask the question. And you get to, really, that's the most important thing. You get to ask the question. And again, we're on our streak of answering every single question. So thank you. To everybody yeah. who supported us that way. And remember, you can also support us if you want to buy some swag. We have our T-shirts and our mugs and our uh, hoodies and our little onesies. Um, you can you can get all of those on our support page. So thank you to everybody for all your support. We really appreciate it.
Thank you. All right, let's welcome in Paul Bloom, VBW favorite. Nice to be back. What do you think, like if you had to guess right now, how many times have you been on Very Bad Wizards? Wow. Um, let me go for, let me go for um, eight. Eight times. I would say over. There, there is an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I will look it up right now. There was an episode, like you had an a, a anniversary episode where I just dropped in to congratulate. But okay, don't count if that. we don't count that, it's 10. It's My, 11 with that. Very exciting. Wow. Yeah. Very wow. exciting. That is, uh, very first episode was episode 24, about empathy. Wow. I know we, you guys, you guys have, have legs. You guys have been going for a while. <laughs> we, we don't quit. This is all we're known for. So if we stop now, that's hey, going to be like, speak for yourself. Could be worse. all I'm known for is this honorary, very bad wizards person. <laughs> <laughs> like most possibly most valued guests tied with Yoel. <laughs> you uh, you've surpassed Yoel in terms of appearances because he's he got his own yeah podcast. he got his own podcast he has a spin-off you know I, I was thinking the other day i would like to categorize certain podcasts as spin-offs yeah. of very bad wizards yeah. and uh, I, I want i want to put laurie santos and sam harris and yoel imbar in the spin-off category yeah uh, and it's I different like levels of spinoffs, i think <laughs> like sam harris that's the jeffersons like that's its, it's own the show. but you know <laughs> like Nobody remembers anymore. I, I feel like Yoel, it's like, you know, Joni loves Chachi. Or Rhoda. Rhoda, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Lori Santos, I don't know. Like, is there an evil spinoff? Lori Santos, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. She could be Angel to your Buffy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, all we have to do is mention on Twitter that, Paul, you're going to be on in our and our uh, listeners go crazy. Well, uh, I appreciate it. Any any chance I can get. And today we're going to talk about the TV show. This I'm really excited about the TV show severance, which we didn't talk about this beforehand, but we all agree that people should watch this show. Yes. (laughs) Before, probably before listening to the rest of this episode, we're not going to hide anything that happened. So watch it all. Or you have to be in that weird camp that David is in where you think it's okay to, have your yeah, I don't mind. Spoiled. I don't mind getting spoiled. Yeah, but in this, in this case, it is true that the that what what is deeply interesting to me is something that is pretty much revealed almost in the promos. Yeah, and and, and that is the the central premise that there's this divided self. So, Paul, you actually got me to watch it, and so and you want to say something about just the general philosophy that's being done. So, I was at a philosophy conference a long time ago, and I actually looked it up to try to remember the speaker because I'm going to take this idea, but I forget his name, unfortunately, and I can't find it. But he was talking about Christopher Nolan films, like Memento and Inception and The Prestige, which, you know, there's a lot to be talked about there. And what he said is, they're, they're not, you can imagine a film doing philosophy in that it, it illustrates a philosophical point. You know, you have, you'd have the trolley problem could show up in a good place, or you have, you have a case. In fact, I think oh, Batman films, one of Nolan's Batman films, does some philo- philosophical moral dilemmas. But he said the Nolan films are more than that. They're actually doing philosophy. They're trying to express certain philosophical ideas about memory and persistence and identity. And so, and in themselves, I think they're sort of contributions to how to think about these things. And, and that's what I feel about Severance, which is I never, Severance really got me to take seriously certain ideas about identity that before I didn't quite buy and the importance of memory. And I think it, it, it really is sort of, it, it deserves some credit as, as an intellectual contribution on its own besides, you know, being enjoyable to watch and fun and all that. Yeah, so I taught a philosophy of film class during the spring semester of last year. I, I, we read a, a couple of those articles, and one in particular that, that made the same point, that f- 
they're not illustrating philosophy. They can do philosophy. Yeah. And they talked about modern times in that context. And I think Ikiru and... Um, and what I really like about that, because I, I totally buy that, and often, you know, my my feelings are it often does philosophy better than philosophy does, at least a lot of contemporary philosophy. But 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 what matters isn't just the idea, and this is where I w- I might think Nolan is maybe not the best example of it. Although I think Memento of those, I think Memento like counts more than maybe Inception or something like that. But um, yeah, but Prestige really counts. Oh yeah, the Prestige the too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But like, it's not just the idea for me. It's the thing that that movies can do that analytic philosophers don't want to do and and aren't capable of doing is flesh it out so that you actually see that this is real people and not just a stick figure drawing of a guy at a trolley switch or something yeah. like that, you know? <laughs> and so Smith not so you can Jones. flesh out the examples and the idea, but you also flesh out the fact that there are real people involved in this stuff. And I think that's important if, if you know, the goal is to sort of make us think about these questions and... Um, you know, and even come to some sort of tentative position on what the answers to those questions are. I mean, in some ways, this is the the central notion that drives our podcast, because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> over time, I think we've come to it. We were saying this explicitly in the Ted Chiang, or at least I remember I, I was saying something like Ted Chiang's essays yeah. do a much better job. Stories. I mean, his short stories yep. do a much better job at communicating some of these philosophical ideas exactly for what you were just saying Tamla, right which is it's not just memory and what if you could remember every detail it is actual people dealing with this philosophical idea and all of the implications that might come along with that interpersonal emotional implications um and yeah this one is i mean this is certainly sci-fi and the central premise is such a big one that it does carry the show but I'm so glad they made it into a TV show where we can see these characters actually develop. Yeah. I don't know. Did either of you see Devs? I didn't. I've heard about it. People recommended it. So, so th- that was a show by Alex Gar- Garland, also high kind of sci-fi concept. But like just the characters were so wooden. They were just stripped of anything kind of fun or interesting about them. And I love that Severance doesn't do that. Like there's fun in these characters. There's a yeah. lot of poignancy. It's very moving. It's not just hardcore focused on like free will determinism which is kind of right. what and yeah. devs was focused on and yeah no absolutely and and uh i always want to say scott adams adam scott <laughs> um so brings good. like this this just real tender kind of performance in a way that i you know i never even watched parks and rec so i only know him from yeah, me neither from stuff that's like where, where he's just kind of a sarcastic sort of straight man. Kind yeah, he was of in Big, Big Little Lies, a small character oh, for that. Yeah, and he's been right. a lot of things. And his but, best role, in my view, is Step Brothers. Like, just <laughs> iconic, like, comedic role. Like, just perfect. But the acting is... So, so the key idea, which we'll talk about, is uh, they have this operation called Severance, which um, makes them am- amnesic when they go to work so that they lose all memory of their, their outer lives. And then they sort of start anew. And then when they leave work, they lose all memory of what they did at work. And so the notion here, which I think I find very persuasive, is that you end up with, in some sense, two people, an innie and an outie. The outies, yeah. in this circumstance, a kind of dominant personality, because a personality who, who has a life and a house and, and family and so on. The innie... And made the choice. And made the choice and has control yeah. over the innie. And we can talk a lot about that. But, but Adam's gone, acts the hell out of it. 
because oh, God, his, yes. his his life outside has a tragedy at its core. And when he's in, when when the elevator opens and he, he resumes as his innie self, his face loosens. And he yeah, becomes yeah. a little bit like a child, a childlike. Because, of course, in some way, he is, you know, zero years old, just when he started yeah. the company. And, and, and he has very, he has, as he remembers reading no books because only the company man, because that's all they read down there. And he, yeah. does, he probably, is, probably has never had sex. He has never, he's in some way like a child. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I agree, like that elevator trip up, you see his face just transform yes. as it's going. And then, you know, like he becomes a little more confident. And the first time this happens, you don't know what's going on. So it's like, is he just like one of these people who's a dick at work or something like that? Or he gets like, you know, he has to psych himself yeah. up. But yeah, no, he plays that very well. And then when you find out what the reason is, which is that his wife um, died, or did she? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the central tragedy. And he's really the only person we kind of get a, we get an idea why he decided to sever himself. And for him, it's like he just wanted time away, I guess, from thinking about his wife. It's interesting yeah. because it's, given what we know about the procedure, yeah. really, you're, you're constantly existing as an Audi mm. or you're constantly existing as an innie. That's right. so, so it wouldn't help. Yeah. And well, that's what that. I, you know, yeah. I, I guess that if, if the denominator is 24 hours and you just, you think it would help to like be able to spit, you know, I guess it's some form of escapism in the same way that maybe drinking would help you forget for a bit, but you don't even remember that you forget. It was short. It like, was short in his waking hours, the Audi and the Innie yeah. is always awake. I yeah. mean, in some way, my, my, yeah, my that's son, scary. My, my son's, my son, Zach, uh, who enjoys the show too, suggested that he would do a severance for going to the bathroom. That whenever he goes to the bathroom, he's severed. So he never lives a life of having to go to the bathroom. And I said, but you condemn another person to live his entire life on the toilet. Right. He said, I don't, exactly. I don't care. It's not me. <laughs> it's not him. It would just be me doing like Wordle and Quartle and <laughs> Turtle and stuff like that. That would just be my whole life. I, I'll do that. I'll consign my person to doing that. I know, because honestly, I don't even, it's not like I jerk off in the bathroom. Yeah. So it's not, I don't even get that, you know. <laughs> I, start, I, I love silencing Paul with this comment. Um, you, you don't see my disapproving look. <laughs> you know, Paul, you said something about the the character, the innies being zero years old. And that's something that I love about the way that they deal with this, which is they really are infantilized, the, the employees as innies. They're treated in this really weird condescending way. Like, they're you know, they're given like these dumb rewards. Like if you get your work done, you get to play with a Chinese finger trap or, you know, you get some, like melon balls or a dance party. And... And it took me a second to realize that's because those people really are, in some sense, newborns. Yeah. So I have a question then, like if we're just going to talk about that aspect of it, it's not totally clear to me like what they know and what they don't know, what they're born with. Yeah. And at the beginning with Helly and just a great scene where she just wakes up on that table and you have Adam Scott's voice and she doesn't know where she came from. She doesn't know what her name is. But she knows a state, at least. She knows Delaware. She clearly knows how to read. She has semantic memory. Yeah. They have to know enough to be functional in their in the workplace. So, it's, so does, it was just not totally clear to me what the dividing line is. It's just anything specific to them. So the Psych 101 um, thing is, yeah, they lose all autobiographical memory, all episodic memory pre-severance. They know how to do things, how to walk, how to use the toilet. They know language. But they're they perfect. know facts about the worlds that are just semantic facts, yeah. not autobiographical ones. So the scene is is Helly starts on the table, and mm -hmm. and I was reading a dis discussion. It's sort of like birth. 
you're there, you're, you're, and then she's born and she's freaking out. And then, you know, uh, um, Mark relaxes her and explains to her what she's, what she's up to. What a great way, though, of trying to, to answer that question. Because um, it, it's true. Like, you ha- I think you do have to know about what happens to re- people who experience this real retrograde amnesia to understand what they're trying to say. But the way that they use that opening scene with those five questions to just let the viewer know, like at least get, you can get a sense of like, they're supposed to know facts about the world, but nothing about themselves. It's really well done. So, so the way we're putting it is there's an asymmetry where the outie's the person. The innie's the newborn, yeah. The innie's the newborn, that's right, that's right. And so there's no sort of substantial real difference except this, just the innie is, is, is a newborn. And if you started off as a newborn and severed a baby, and spent half the time there and half the time there. The Indian and Audi would grow. There'd be no, there'd be no difference. You know what's unclear? Bella asked this the other day when we were, and I don't know what the answer is for these amnesic fugue patients. Uh, is their personality largely the same? Because it seems as if there are aspects of your personality that might really just be sort of const, your constitutional makeup, perhaps your biological yeah. makeup. But there are some aspects that might require explicit autobiographical memory you know the time that you were embarrassed in front of others that has led you to be more quiet um that's a good question yeah so like so it, it, it would address the question of sexual orientation so bert finds himself very attracted to it too and falls in love with basically uh, yeah. a man in another department oh and, my God. and and john Turturro, christopher walken yeah. just like you know i'm normally against same-sex male couples <laughs> the christopher walken <laughs> Bert and Irving. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like that is, it's so like, I loved those scenes with them together yeah. so much. Who are friends in real life. And they, and they actually, uh, you know, they, 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 wait, do we know they're friends in real life? According to, Oh, 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 I, sorry. No, I sorry. No, no, this is not, this is not any Audi thing. This is, there's any, there's Audi, yeah. then there's real world. Right. <laughs> so. right. Bert was gay. That's clear. His Audi person is also gay, but yeah. uh, uh, Irving, we don't know for sure. He, we know he was like a navy hero. And... But Irving, Irving drove over to his house, and yeah, as in his innie state. In his so. innie state. Though. Oh, that's right. In his innie state. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Right. The final. I, I got the final scene is their innies see their Audi yeah. world. All right. I feel like we're jumping. Uh, we're jumping ahead here, like because like, we haven't even given all of our general impressions. Yeah, I will say that I loved the show. I totally I binged it. Also watched with my daughter, and we were like, at just one Sunday, we were just like, all right, we're just plowing through the last five. Like we're not like this is our day, and totally fun. I'm glad we're talking about it. I I was struggling to figure out like, is this deep? Like, what is this saying about the self, or what is this saying about? I don't know, workplace culture or uh, the work-life balance or, you know, like alienation. You know, I think it could be saying a lot of these things, but I wasn't, those things didn't pop out of while I was watching it, which is good. Like, I don't think that sh- stuff should be in your face. I think it should be something you have to, like, work through a little bit. Um, but I, I think the answer to that is yes, but I'm not 100% sure. I don't know. That's, so that's my feeling. Totally, I loved it. I, I'm still wondering what I think of it philosophically. I'm sure there's stuff about uh, corporations and work and balance and so on. I didn't get much of that. I mean, it, there's one way of looking at it could be very heavy-handed, which is, oh, the corporation is, you know, pulls away your soul and your identity, and it's terrible. Yeah. But I, if that's it, it just wasn't that interesting. But the identity stuff to me, this basically persuaded me that memory 
is identity. And that the Indian out, you have a situation of two people sharing the same body. And, and it is impossible, this is why it's sort of a philosophical argument, which is, it's impossible for me to see the show any other way as, as each of the characters is now two different people. And I, and I, I never took that view that seriously before. I um similar to Paul, I, you know, I, I saw people talking about this right away in terms of corporate critique of corporate culture or <clears throat> work-life balance. And I, it may be that, and it probably is, but I find that to be a boring and dreary sort of central, <laughs> central message. I mean, I think it's, it could very well be, and I was talking a little bit to you all about this. It could, ver- it could easily just be a cult, a religion of some sort. It could be a government. Yeah. I don't think there's anything about it that's really specific to, to corporations, but fair enough if people want to read it as that. The, the identity stuff, kind of like what you're saying, Tamler, is I, I like that it wasn't so obvious to me that it was making any argument. Um, but Paul, you saying that it convinced you of this thing, I didn't, I don't think I wasn't convinced of it, but it very viscerally does show the battle between selves yes. that to some extent is probably going on with us all the time. And key to this is that the two selves are forbidden from any real communication. And, and so any self could be viewed as self at time one, and Audi self could be viewed as self at time two. It's just that for us, we're constantly, we have contiguity, we have constant overlapping memories from the last instant. We have ways of essentially communicating with our future selves by leaving a trail of our own behavior and our own communication to people in the outside world, planning, all that. There's a constant communicating of our many selves. And this true severance procedure is artificially collecting those into, you know, pooling two different identities and keeping them separated. And in that sense, it's like what people, many people think about the severing of the corpus callosum, where you're preventing the two lobes from communicating. But there really are two people residing in this brain. The longer they're prevented from communicating with each other, the more distant in terms of identity that they get, I think. Much in the way that Parfit says in The Transporter, Parfit really believes that you're the, the two copies are the same exact person. It's just that the minute they start living different lives, that's when they diverge. And it's interesting for me in terms of character development to see these two personalities really developing as two completely different characters. So wait, so... Uh, just to be clear, the only real sense of an Audi that we get is Adam Scott's character. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other ones, we only get glimpses, and most of them at the end. Although, right. although we do see the confrontation between Heli, her Indian, well, hell, yeah. and, 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 and which is quite chilling. Oh, where, yeah. Where, oh, it's so her, her, at one point, her Audi, she wants, yeah, just a reminder, she wants to leave. And so she puts in a request to her Audi, let me go. And it says, no. And then she she holds her body hostage, like she's gonna slice off her fingers, and yeah. and and then the Audi just says, "You're stuck in there. You're not even a person." Yeah, and and this is Shit. why I completely disagree with both of you that I think a lot of the corporate stuff is the most interesting part, more than the identity part, because I think that the dystopian element of this, which is played up in lots of different ways, right? Just the, the, the office space and like the hallways and the endless desks. But then also this idea of like, what's like, we want to create slaves essentially. Like we're trying to create slaves and this is our way of doing it. And in fact, we're going to create slaves that are us. And like the, 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 
the the whole reveal about Ellie being actually like the the CEO of this company that's doing it and still willing to submit her own uh, half a self for, uh, to work like that. But that's what they are. They're slaves. They go, what, what the scariest thing is they're done with work. They go down in the elevator, they come back up and they don't think any time has passed. Like having anesthesia. It's like whatever has happened, they might feel it physically. What Adam Scott says, your shoulders might be a little looser. You might feel a little less tired or something like that. But so- all they do is work. I don't know. Like, I got a lot of marks, you know, like we've run out of workers to exploit. So now we're going to exploit like half of you so, um, to, so way to create that, this product. So yeah. the way to bring that together, what David was saying is that, you know, if identity is memory, then it's sort of like, then it's not all or nothing. And you could see this building from your critique as what we see in this in the show is an extreme version of corporate life. I go to my job. I have different friends, different experiences. Um, I do different things. And totally some, alienated and, from it. And, and yeah. you know, I think we all live lives which aren't like that. You know, whatever you think of our lives, they're, 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 the, the word is very blurred. But I have, I, I have a friend of mine who works in a bank, and he goes nine to five in a bank. And then, yeah. his, and half of it's, I, I don't doesn't think about his work, doesn't doesn't talk, that doesn't get together with his work friends. Has a whole different friends, and it's leading sort of two different lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is commenting on that kind of life as well. You know, the person who their job is their job and maybe it's something that they're a little like iffy about. They're not the proudest of what they do necessarily, <laughs> or they work in corporate law firms or something like that, but it's their job. And yeah. that's why they can like report their families and that's why they can, but they don't talk about it. They don't. Yeah. And I, you know, it, it's not that I disagree Tamler, I'm a consensus builder. I choose not to frame it as a disagreement. Yes. But rather as a matter of like, more what I was saying is like, that stuff is clearly there. Such right? a like, Gentile and when you say, way of... <laughs> when you say, <laughs> I, I turned the other cheek. <laughs> yeah. when, when, when you say, for instance, about <clears throat> the alienation stuff, this is a clear case in which even their innies are alienated because they are performing a task that they have zero idea <laughs> what they're doing. As to yeah. what, what it, yeah. And I'm not sure whether they're ta so they basically they watch these like retro computer screens. Yeah, this and, is this is cool yeah, stuff. I love that. They shit. have to sort these. There's just a bunch of digits floating around, and they have to do some task where they collect some group of those digits that are floating around and put them in one bin, and they separate these into buckets. And the way that they do it is, they're just told just stare at these numbers, and after a while you'll get a feel for which ones are the bad ones, and then you'll put those into a bin. And I was really, and I was also talking to you all about this, really curious as to whether you two think that this is something important that will be revealed or whether it's a MacGuffin that is only <laughs> intended to demonstrate that what they're doing isn't important and they don't even know. So a formative uh, experience in my life was watching Lost. It's the ultimate great TV betrayal. <laughs> where they had all of these complicated and yeah. really weird things, and then they didn't explain yeah. half of them in the end. So, right. I, I maybe this is um, <laughs> reductive. I want explanations of all of this shit. I want, I want the baby goats. I want, I want the waffle party. Yeah. I want, I want there to be a logic behind this. They, they can't do something like this and then just not explain it. Because it also makes them feel like the the yeah. way they put them in the number is it gives them this feeling of like. I don't know, some like unnameable negative emotion, like anxiety yeah. and fear and some th something that just like, oh, the, we got to put The angry in. numbers, like the yeah. angry yeah. numbers. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny because Helly is at first making fun of it. She's like, ooh, a four. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then she sees it and, it, you know, it doesn't seem 
traumatizing. It just seems mildly unpleasant. But in this case, I feel like they would be in a danger of overexplaining in a Not way that, that wouldn't though. be Not that, though. Not the numbers. I don't yeah. think. We get some I love idea. their theories. One of the funniest scenes is where Dylan offers his theory of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah they're <laughs> shooting eels. Oh, eels, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. killing eels in the ocean. He's very funny. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, life can be overwhelming and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, feeling detachment, fatigue, and a lot more. And if there's ever a time of year to be burnt out, if you're a student or a faculty, this is it, right? End of the semester, exams, papers, grading, constant meetings. It affects you mentally and physically in ways that you might not be aware of. And yeah, we associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feel burned out, and BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. And maybe you have a friend or a loved one that you can talk to, but sometimes talking with a person who is completely unbiased and also trained to help people with particular issues and challenges can be cathartic. It can be life-changing. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. That's a, so it's also just like a workplace comedy at times, yes. you know, yeah. like, you know, it is just these four guys, this, you know, shitty boss, this weirder, sh like higher up shitty boss played by Patricia Arquette. Both of them are great. And, yeah, you know, so that good. also brings in the cult aspect. At least you get the sense with Patricia Arquette, actually both of them, that they really believe that what they're doing is like important and they don't seem to have severed like the other ones right. and you know they can be cruel and they can be cold-blooded but they also seem to really buy into what they're doing and i saw a, a, an interview with the writer and he was saying we definitely did a lot of research into this cult um and it's the specific one he mentioned was huh. nxivm yeah. But then his point was, it's a spectrum between that and like Starbucks. You know, like you hear about the founder, you hear about their kind of vision of the company. It's obviously there's one extreme and then there's, a, you know, a, a lower part of that spectrum, but it's all kind of the same thing. And I remember I sold for the Institute of Reading Development and I had to like try to get people to buy, to sign up, to be taught how to read more efficiently. And I remember like there was a, period like from four to five where we if this is like the tour they get where we had to like watch a video on the history of how the founder started the institute of reading development and like yeah. the the woman who was like above us was like she was like it brings a tear to my eye i was like are you fucking kidding me <laughs> like are you like it was the cheesiest most ridiculous thing but 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 you were supposed to buy in and the people who were in charge of us we were just like the salespeople. The people who were in charge of us, they either bought it or they were really good actors about like how, because 
like they were moved, like they were emotional after this just preposterous video. Yeah, you know, there's also the the cult vibes. They are really creepy. And of course, there's so much of corporate America. I'm, I already know the emails we're going to get. Well, you've never worked in a corporation and you never experienced this kind. Of, it's uncanny. No, I know. Like, true. I, I do. I'm aware of that. It's also very multi-level marketing, kind of like multi-level market culty feeling where they're all a family and you're expected to devote your life and convert your friends and all that. They have a full, a full on replica of the founder's house, you know, from like whatever the 1800s inside the building. And have, have you guys ever been to the Scientology headquarters in Hollywood by any chance? No. Yeah. They have like L. Ron Hubbard's office as he left it. Yeah. Like, but you know, if corporations are robbing us like this of our identity, of our time, making slaves out of us. I'm tempted to say, better it be innies than it be <laughs> me. Better that it yeah, that there be well, a this clear is how it division. Starts. Yeah. <laughs> well, Elon Musk like clear... buying Twitter, and now you like, <laughs> being like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> One important thing about it is people choose. They make a, yeah. a, a big point of mark. He chose, and everybody everybody chooses to do it. For different but, reasons. But the, the, the new one doesn't choose. The, the innies don't choose. <laughs> the outies the choose to create innies. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you guys make of the break room? Yeah. Where they have to apologize. So here in the break room, whenever they violate a rule that pre presumably is serious enough, they go into this room and they're made to read an apology over and over again until... Until? Th until the interrogator believes that it was sincere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the break room reminds me of telling your kid to apologize and, and yes. mean it. Yeah, right. It's a very difficult task. So there's one grueling scene where Helly has to do it, you know, thousand three hundred times because she doesn't mean it. Do you think that that's possible even to what to repeat it until you mean it? Like I mean, when the yeah. I think so. Like I think that's like a I don't know like a torture technique or something where you make somebody do something repeatedly until they start to believe what it is that they're doing. It's like brainwashing. It's like breaking somebody kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. They clearly have all these, you know, rituals for dealing with people acting out because they can't have that. They can't. And, and they especially can't have that when they're dependent on this person not doing something violent that would affect their Audi because then the Audi is just not going to go back in. And they don't seem to have any way of forcing the Audis to go back in. Right. That's the brilliance of it is re it relies on a truly free choice on the part of the Audis every time. Right. And but they don't so interesting. know. They don't know. They, it's so interesting to see them have to, you know, as the tension builds, they are in a battle with their, with their, the Audis and the Innies. Yeah. The, the the episode where Ellie tries to kill herself, tries yeah. to end her life, and she's kind of hanging, and she goes back up because she wants her Audi to know that she's doing this. I, I just love that because it's like this little mini internal rebellion that is squat. Like for now, at least, you know, end of the episode, we should talk about the end of the season and all the, that and all that stuff. But like this was just a little mini revolution, a little mini protest revolt that was in the end just put down and it's just all in the this la's elevator ride it's just very like that that stuff was very cool i thought is it is it i got into a discussion with somebody about this is it wrong 
what Audi's <laughs> doing to create an innie to go work and I mean it's not sadistic. The idea would be the innie makes the money and the Audi <laughs> spends it, I guess. Yeah, but the innie is the slave. It's definitely wrong. To me, this is the central ethical question being asked so far. Um, I'm not convinced that it's wrong. I'm convinced that the any is being harmed, but I'm not convinced that it's wrong to harm yourself. Is it, is it different in kind from saying, well, I need some money. I'm going to work in this very miserable, boring nine to five job. While I'm there, I'm not going to be very happy. But then when I leave, that's, that's the price I pay. It's funny. My intuitions are like, are you guys are fucking psychos right now? And uh, like, of course it's wrong, right? Like, they're just like, think of what, like, think of the. There's this other kind of thread where it seems like people, you like, will develop an innie just to have childbirth. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So now you have this innie that's being born, and all she'll experience is the pain of childbirth, and then immediately, as soon as like the pain stops, she'll be dead. I'm actually surprised at how how much you're buying into the different person. Yeah. Right. I thought you would be more of a monist about this stuff. Well, I guess it's because <laughs> I agree with Paul that like I think the memory like this really does. And I'm teaching like a seminar in the self right now. And so we've looked at some of the stuff on memory and especially narrative. And it seems like these people who are innies have no narrative conception of who they are. And like, you know, the, the narrative view is that you need to have a narrative to have a self, you know, the stronger versions of it is like, that tells you what you're about, like what your values are, where, like what your trajectory is. And when you don't have that, you're not a self. Now the innies don't have it at first, then they have it, but it's a totally different narrative than the Audis narrative. So to me, they seem like completely different people. And so that's why it seems like, because it seems like you're doing something wrong to another person. So one, that's what explains my intuition. One way to test the intuitions is, I, I don't know if you guys talked about this, but there's the, a famous philosophical example. Let's say an example, maybe it's true about anesthesia, where one story about anesthesia is that it actually does not dull your pain. It paralyzes you. You feel every moment of the pain, but then you lose your memory of it. And I was telling this <laughs> to somebody, because I actually was going for surgery. And I realized this, and I started talking with this anesthesiologist who I was expected she would just say, that's ridiculous. Yeah, some people believe that. And I don't know. Like, <laughs> Whoa, what? Comforting Holy words. shit, <laughs> that blows my like, mind. I'm so lying we might have already done this. We might have had the most horrible torture in the world, yeah. having people cut into our bodies while we're paralyzed, can't scream. And then we wiped memory. But the thing is, I told somebody about this, and he said, eh, who cares? I don't, it doesn't bother I mean, me. Right, that's, this is like when I think about, about you know, getting circumcised. Like I can't, I, I can't muster the outrage because I don't remember the pain at all. Um, yeah. But it did ha happen I, to you. It did happen to me. And, and I guess my intuition, I keep pulling my intuition back to instances. Well, two things. The second one I want to get to about personal identity, what you said, Tom. The first one though, is that I keep thinking, how is this any different from, you know, not eating healthy? in your 20s and paying the price when you're in your 30s. I, like, I guess person in your 20s has made a damaging decision that person in your 30s has no control over. But they're both us. It's, like, there is something to me real about the boundaries of my physical body and it being my brain that is making the decisions. So that's, that so that's think, the youngie fucking over the oldie. Yeah. And I think to some degree, most of our decisions but, are like that because I, I think that that's just what identity 
But you feel as a 37-year-old, you feel like, well, that was me making the decisions and now here here am I paying the price. But you don't feel that when you're an innie and you didn't make the choice. Yeah, so the question is whether, no, no, that second thing is is, is not necessarily true. That it could be that you don't feel a connection. That's totally true. But the, to me, the ethical uh, question is not whether or not you feel the connection, is whether or not that other self truly has the right to do what they did. Well, right. I, like, I don't know if I would put this in terms of rights. Uh, I would frame it more in terms of it's wrong to create a different self that only does the things that you don't want to do. So there's like, a snake. There's a supposition we're all making here, including me, which is that suppose I, I have a very painful thing coming up with childbirth or whatever, and I and I sever myself. The idea is I don't feel it then. There, there's, mm-hmm. there's, you know, part A is walking and I say, oh, great, I'll sever myself. I'll cut it. Part B will be an amnesic. But there's another way of looking at it where, where that's me. Somebody's getting the pain and that somebody is me. And just because I don't remember it later doesn't mean it's not me. Yeah, right, but... but- I think that's so fascinating that you said that, Paul, because, you know, as someone like who had Achilles tendon surgery, which if you're right and if that person (laughs) is right, I created a small little self like that only existed for the duration of that surgery that was just like only lived for experiencing excruciating pain and then immediately. Yeah. And... That would it's like, like Jesus. It's like you like exactly. You created a savior I created for a you. Small, tiny Tamler Jesus, <laughs> and he died for your sins. <laughs> for my sins. That's horrible. But then, if like so, someone says like, let's say that gets vindicated, and then someone, and then like I tear my other Achilles, which I'm probably like bound to happen, and they're like, okay, now that you know, do you want to like? Do you want to like have the anesthesia or not? Because all it's doing is actually creating this separate self. And then, you know, like you come out of it, you won't even know that it happened, which is totally true. When you do anesthesia, it's like no time has passed at all once you get up. So maybe like as much as I think like it's psychotic to do this to like maybe like I would still do it. Like all it takes is I have to undergo another surgery or something like that. Given that we know what they're doing, here's let me try to pull your intuition in this direction. He is essentially taking on a corporate job. He has decided to accept the job. He is doing this work. Imagine a version of him that just goes in every morning voluntarily, works that job and comes back home. That he has chosen to like essentially take a drug to forget what he did during the day, but nonetheless get the work done, seems kind of appealing to me. And it reminds me of a few times in which I remember I used to take Ambien. And I remember taking Ambien and actually writing emails that were just like work emails. And they weren't crazy because I, like, I wasn't right. like drunk or anything. Unlike I just me on the remember. Very Bad Wizards Facebook page. What did you do? That was your true self. That was, uh, it was a Jason Stanley kind of deal. Like. <laughs> it was, uh, I, so I wrote work emails and I remember waking up the next day or edited a paper or something. And I woke up the next day and I didn't remember that I had done the work. But I was like, wow, I left like but this gift. Yeah, yeah, it's like I've left this gift to myself. Maybe they're like, hey, Innie's taking one for the team. Like, Innie's doing all the work, and I get the paycheck. Like, uh, it's if just they could voluntarily switch it off every morning, right. that'd be different, right? That, yeah, but that would be different. Yeah. But like, no, that would be no, a different thing. Really you're, nothing you're, has- you don't get to, like, in this case, you just are doing the work. Like, you have no other life. You don't have, like, a 
sex life. At best, you'll meet like you're you're an older man and you're gay, and you'll meet uh, like another <laughs> older would, gay man, and I you would, can like have conversations it, in the hallway, which is awesome. But the, some, the chance of having sex with Christopher Walken at work is enough to, to persuade me. <laughs> somebody made passing reference in one of the episodes uh, in the Audi world to oh they they read a case where this woman got pregnant, where her innie got pregnant. Oh yeah, that's right. And it doesn't pass, you know. Okay, so suppose there's a chip that is in you that lets you switch on what we can call an amnesia device. So, so you, let's say you have a full day of spring cleaning. You don't really want to do it, but you know you have to. You switch it on so that the next thing you remember is it's nighttime, your house is completely clean. So the question is, is there a consciousness in between? There's no problem if it's like a robot, an unconscious robot doing it. Yeah, there is. It's just you. I don't know. Like I, I have such a strong. You're right, actually, Paul. That this is like making me buy the narrative view. But it's like you've created somebody completely new. Yeah. And and all and they live their whole life cleaning your house, like <laughs> according to your weird standards, uh, because you're kind of a germaphobe. Like that's a, not a good life. That's not a eudaimoniac life. <laughs> <laughs> although, although to some extent, we in this world we employ people to use their full selves to do the uglier jobs of society. Oh, totally. There you go. This is... <laughs> to, to pay a cleaner is unethical? I mean, I think these are the kinds of questions that it's also interesting. Yeah, no, it's fair enough. I'm, I'm getting... Yeah. So here's a question that came as we're talking, which is, I had this weird intuition where if I had an innie and somebody told me, somebody at Lumens is going to get tortured, I actually don't worry so much whether it's me or somebody else. Like, I wouldn't say, oh my God, I hope it's not my innie. I just feel it's totally separate. And as yeah, long as my body is, isn't damaged, I don't care particularly who it is. This is one of the things that I find, like, I don't totally get physiologically. Because if you're having a bad day at work and you are so pissed and maybe even, like, you're running, you're running away from that, like, security guard that, like, yeah. uh, you know... And then you go down the elevator. Like, there's no way that's not going to physically manifest yeah. itself in some way for the Audi. And they talk about that. They mention it. I think Adam Scott mentions it for the innie, that you feel less rested or, or more rested and maybe your shoulders aren't hurting as much. But but for the Audi, that's got to also be true, right? And I guess it would be, but, there, but for the Audi, probably feels like, yeah, that's how I would have felt anyway but i would, I would have had hypertension it. at the end of the day yeah either either way that, either way that's a great question about the emotions suppose i'm absolutely furious and i lose my memory boom well like so hell my, my heart might clearly, still be pounding yeah. but I'm, right. does my anger just fade away like it seems like a damasio kind of view would be more yeah, like you're yeah. still pissed you're still angry you may not know why anymore but you're like worked up that's right, how i think it would be Right. You could you could have the sort of the two factor theory of emotion view that like is so long as the person coming down the elevator is told that the reason their heart is beating is because they just had like a party, then then perhaps they could <laughs> no, reappraise. You, I, I've had times like some bad combination of edibles and alcohol or something like that, and I'll get really mad and I'll be like yelling about something and then I'll completely <laughs> forget what it is that I'm yelling about. But I still feel angry, and but like I have to get, ask the person I'm ta yelling at, like <laughs> what I'm mad. About. That sounds very <laughs> very creepy, Tamler. So <laughs> You're screaming at somebody, saying, "Wait, why am I yelling at you? Why am I why am I mad at you? Totally, that's why totally am I punching happening. you? Why am I punching you, Liza? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is why I I feel like um th this is just sort of a a writ large what we do to ourselves. 
like we escape by doing taking drugs and alcohol all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I I never have blackout drunkenness, but you know there are people who experience this sort of thing all the time. Their drunk self comes out. They're, they're Mr. Hyde. Yeah, I mean, the blackout drunk is actually maybe the best analogy to this kind of person, except that the blackout drunk person has some knowledge of who they are and what their name is and some and something like that. And they have, you know, it's almost like the innie is more the priv or the Audi is more the prisoner of the innie for the for the blackout drunk kind of thing. That's, that's such a great question. I. I a long time ago took Ambien and and alcohol, and then it was a very frightening experience. I basically the next day I'm thinking, I mean, it's in the evening, and I'm thinking back, and I have no memory of my morning, where I know I had given a guest lecture in somebody's class, and I email them and say, "Hey, how did that guest lecture go?" And, yeah. and I remember the day that you did. And, and she said, "I went fine. It was a great lecture." And I had, it was deeply frightening. But now I'm asking the question. Which I never asked before, which was what was what was a very brief any me like? Presumably, yeah. I was conscious. I was fully conscious. I was me. I maybe was just, you were your best self. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um. So, to, to the issue of personal identity and autobiographical memory, I sh I share your intuitions that it seems as if we just are our, our memories, but. I don't think that can be totally right because there are things, you know, isn't that like an old philosophical problem? Like the young man remembers the, the, the old man remembers the middle-aged man, the middle-aged yeah. man. Yeah. Remembers. Thomas Reed. Uh, yeah. Um, but there are cases like HM of severe anterograde amnesia where they can't remember that they just met somebody a minute ago. It's like a new experience. And that's usually combined with some sort of retrograde amnesia where they can't rem they can you know remember who they are, but pretty much it right they they've lost much of their autobiographical memory, and so you have people who are living moment to moment with no memory of why they are where they are. They seem to still feel as if they have a they self they seem to like actually talk about themselves as being like. There's this, I forget the name of the guy, but I show it every year to my intro psych class. Clyde Waring. It's a very severe Clyde Waring. And he says, he at one point gets angry. He says, I've never seen a doctor. They're incompetent here. Nobody's been able to take care of me. Um, and, you know, he saw one like the minute ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's still him. I think he would still feel. Right. He's still someone that would tend to bitch about like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like yeah. how he's being treated at all. That's right. like me. I, I think it is, though, it's not, we're not questioning whether they have a self. We're just saying it is not necessarily the same self. But that does raise the question of how much of your personality depends on your memories. And yeah. we have two cases, the biggest case being Adam Scott, where we have a sense of their personalities on both sides. And we mentioned that Adam Scott seems like he's a little looser and lighter at work. But, but they seem like the same person overall, just like at different stages in their life with different breaks cutting their way, like two, two kind of alternate versions on a timeline where the wife doesn't die or the wife dies or something like that. The other one that we get at any kind of real sense of is Ellie, and it's not anywhere near as detailed, but we know Annie, Ellie's Eni really Hell well, and she's like the... She she's the protester, yeah. you know. She's the Che Guevara, like the you know, like she's she wants to like bring the place down, but then she's also the person that is 
like running the operation or in line to run the op. So on the one hand, it seems like, well, that's totally different. She, she's friend of the working uh, man and, and she's like the CEO or incoming CEO. But on the other hand, it's like they both have this kind of like, I don't know, like strong, strong will, like a clearly strong, strong will. Yeah. yeah. Maybe almost kind of privileged attitude. Like I shouldn't be treated like this, yeah. which in this case, in the Indies case is probably right. But maybe you need like the confidence of being, you know, feeling like the world should cater to you to even think that when you're there. So, um, I don't know. Like, I think you could make a case that they are kind of the similar personalities, even if, their different selves. It reminds me of a villain who, in some way, doesn't see things as we're talking about. Because when he, when he sort of, when his innie wakes up in his house and, and he sees he has a son, he is, yeah. it, it, it is deeply shocking to him and jarring. And yeah. I think he would tell you that his Audi is him mm-hmm. and it's very important. And, and there's, there's a, a scene where, you know, uh, his manager is like screaming at him and he, and wanting to get him to open the door. And he says, if you open the door, I'll tell you, you have two other sons. I'll tell you their names. And, and there is, it's yeah. there. It's like, really? Oh, the the son totally. is the same guy. It's a very, very yeah. moving scene actually. Yeah. He's a, he's a good character. I didn't totally buy his like rivalry with the other department, but <laughs> he adds a kind of like lightness to the show. That's, like I think really good, especially kind of early. There's on. something about one of the departments kill all the other department and <laughs> yeah. cannibalize them or something. It's just it's, some of the show is just nuts. We, there's all sorts of things we're not talking about because I'm not sure anything yeah. makes sense. The ghosts. There's like the there's ghosts. just a, a a wonderful absurdity to to the show. Yeah, um, it doesn't. T- it takes itself the right amount of seriously. I, I yes, feel like yes. like it doesn't think it's more profound than it is it is is really like the tone of it is great there's a, there's mark's sister's husband who is played as this kind of <laughs> this jackass <laughs> clown who writes this terrible self-help book but uh, also like like touching. could start a revolution yes, yes. you know like <laughs> it's like it has both elements to it they're going to publish a self-help book by the way the people who make the show the you within you or something uh, uh, they're gonna the you the you you are, <laughs> the you are. <laughs> At first, you really don't buy that the sister, who's a very kind of sensible, yes, I, I, found, I still like, find that don't buy. Yeah, I think you get the sense that the guy is—he—he's not a con man. He really believes it, and he's like a good person deep down, yeah. even if you know all this bullshit that he's peddling. But like, he buys it, you know. And and that's also true of Patricia Arquette, I think. Yes. Um, and you know, like there's a kind of sad arc with her character. She's like the, the leader of at least the branch of severance that we are in contact with. And she also weirdly has a house that's next door to, uh, Adam Scott's character, which we get the sense that there's something about Mark that's Adam Scott. There's something about Mark that is more important. Yes. He gets a little bit of a promotion then, of course, we, we haven't even talked about the fact that there's this big reveal that his wife, who we thought was dead, is still alive. Although, yeah, I don't know. Like, like, yeah. we can you think she died in a car accident, but she turns out to be the wellness counselor. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but someone who doesn't seem to have the same deal that everybody else has. She doesn't seem to have an Audi. She seems to only exist as an innie and not well, for many hours during the day. Do we know that she doesn't have an Audi? 
We don't know, but she does say this thing about how she's only been alive for 107 hours. And if she was, so that means that, you know, if she was working eight hour days, that wouldn't be very long at all. And and we get the sense that his wife died much longer ago than that. That's true. So, so clearly there's something going on there. We, she, she is, her job seems to be to be this very creepy wellness the a therapy wellness counselor which, which yeah. involves her telling people nice things about their outies like you know your your outie is kind to animals your outie is a compassionate yeah. lover you're, but you're, you're not out- allowed to react <laughs> yes. like <laughs> differently to each thing your outie is strong and can lift large objects <laughs> your outie attends many dances and is popular among the other attendees your outie likes films and owns a machine that can play them. Your Audi is splendid and can swim gracefully and well. (laughs) I'm sorry. Please try to enjoy each fact equally and not show preference for any over the others. That's 10 points off. You have 90 points remaining. Points? Please don't speak. Is this supposed to be maybe a takeoff on a performance review of some sort? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, or like some HR just yeah. nightmare seminar or something like that. It's self-affirmation, but your other self is being affirmed. <laughs> You're just being told. Um, it, it's interesting, though, that they would be made to feel proud about their other selves. You know, they, there is some sort of parent-child mm-hmm. relationship between the Audi and the Innie, it seems, to the extent that there's yeah. any feelings either way. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by NordVPN, my personal favorite VPN, one that I use, so I can tell you all about it from my own experience. A VPN, if you don't know, is a virtual private network. It essentially creates an encrypted connection for your data to flow through. And so if you're somebody who worries about security and privacy, for instance, if you're traveling and you're at a cafe or an airport and you're a little worried about the Wi-Fi connection, simply turn on your VPN and you'll have secure private accuracy guaranteed. But uh, another big reason to use a VPN like NordVPN is that you have access to content from up to 59 different countries. Because what a VPN is doing is allowing your your, uh, IP address to look like it's coming from anywhere, you can essentially use the NordVPN service to get access to streaming services in other countries. So for instance, if you're in the US and you want to watch a UK show on one of the UK streaming services, simply pull down, click that you're from the UK and you get it. Or if like recently you're traveling to another country, for me, I was traveling to Canada and I was able to use my NordVPN to get access to American programming on my streaming services and escape the oppressive Canadian regime. Um, I was able to do it simply and easily. I've said this before, it used to be that these VPNs slowed down your connection. It does not at all anymore. I cannot tell the difference when I'm on the VPN and when I'm not. So if you think that a VPN might be something that you're interested in and you want to support NordVPN and Very Bad Wizards, just go to nordvpn.com VBW. You'll get a two-year plan plus one additional month with a huge discount. It's essentially equivalent to buying a cup of coffee every month. 
a very small price to pay, I think, for having the security that you might want and access to all that entertainment from around the world. Again, that's nordvpn.com slash vbw. Our thanks to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. I do love that um, mock um, Adam Scott, that, that he does such a good performance of being melancholic on the outside and shifting to sort of naive optimism on the inside, kind of surface cheerfulness. But at but one with point, a healthy cynicism, too. Yeah, with a healthy of. cynicism. He doesn't yeah. like take, you know, Dylan takes things yeah. seriously in there. Irving takes things very seriously. He doesn't. But at one point, Petey, who is the friend who disappears from work, it turns out he's been reintegrated, mm-hmm. something they didn't think was possible. He tells him, even inside, you carry it. Like, I can tell, you know? Huh. Yeah, um, and I think that's right. Like, he does have a little bit of something that's weighing him down, even though he has, uh, yeah. And that makes sense, right? It should be like that. That's what I was thinking when you were talking about whether you bring your emotions in. And you know, he references that he used to come in to work with his uh, eyes red every day. And <clears throat> we know from the very first scene that it's because he was crying in his car and he comes up and they used to joke that he had allergies or something or other. Um, so, so is one of the th- questions that it's addressing is, do you deal with your pain up front or do you just repress it and not handle it? You know, like the, I think that, I think that's the sense I got from his character at least is that he is opting to not live with it. He can't address it, even though, it's, to- it's not totally clear how that this helps other than just shortening the days, but I guess at least it does that. There's one of the scenes we didn't talk about, but when um, Irving discovers that, uh, that Bert's retiring and he gets extremely upset and basically says, I forget exact words, says, you know, he's dying, you're killing him. Yeah. And, and that yeah. would, the logic would be if you, if you did wipe out an innie, mm-hmm. it would extinguish a, f- a person with memories and experiences and relationships. This is also what's fascinating about Petey and the difficulties he's having with reintegration. It does seem like it would be a really jarring experience to now have access to, it's it's sort of like, Tamla, you were talking about like a parallel universe branched off and yeah. there's two lives. And now it's like the two They're have emerging. been collapsed upon You'd each other. You'd be having somebody else's and, memories. Yeah. 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 But yours yeah. weirdly, yeah. right? Yours in the same way that Clive Waring is Clive Waring. Like, you know that they're yours because your yeah. self is still in there. You're in the and you're outie or, yeah, very weird. Yeah. I do think we're supposed to think that what Mark is doing is coping incorrectly with his emotion. And that maybe what people are doing by, like, compartmentalizing their life like this is a way of evading or, you know, not dealing in an upfront way with what the real issues of society are, what the real, what your personal issues are. I think that's, that's a part of it. And, and, and what it does is create this kind of underclass. And that's like the last episode, which is just phenomenal of the innies kind of staging a, like a little kind of heist almost like it's like, you know, it turns into a heist film. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Ocean's 11 for for (laughs) the personal identity crew. (laughs) <laughs> getting their innies to be able to somehow, I don't even remember the details, but like 
go out into the outer world and interact with the outer world and let them know like how they're feeling and what's happening. Yeah, um, and the only way to communicate with your Audi is to tell someone else a message, right? Because yeah. what they're getting, their innies are getting switched on through this procedure that apparently just exists for emergencies. They switch on their innies, they discover things about their Audi life, and if their Audi gets switched back on, they will have their innie will remember it, but they'll have no way of of letting the the two. Right. Identities they'll just wake up in the elevator next day, yeah. like, right? Uh, which creates this if. amazing tension in the very last scene. Yeah, uh, and, and and the thing with Ellie, first she finds out, which is a big revelation, but apparently people had figured out on Reddit uh, long before. I didn't uh, go to that. But that she was like the incoming CEO and she was a real convert to this method and, and kind of offered herself as a sacrifice. It's a hair club for men situation. <laughs> <laughs> and, right, and now I'm a member. Uh, and now I'm the owner, right? But like at any moment as she's about to give this speech, which she does, at least in part, give the speech saying like, we, we hate it in there. You're torturing us. Yeah. And we don't know the fallout from that. But like, I don't know, the suspense of that whole moment. And meanwhile, there's Mark tr- finding out at the end. I still don't know what to make of the fact that it's his wife. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be one of those cases where the details about what happened do matter, lest we feel a bit betrayed because... She died supposedly in a car accident, you know, she hit a tree and she has a tree in her office and she has And he built a tree out of clay. Yeah, and he built a tree out of clay. Oh. But oh. how how he would get fooled into thinking that his wife was dead unless there's some 6 million dollar man shit going on. That's they, I think it's like yeah. I feel like it's some like reanimation. Oh man, they can they yeah. can get reanimation robots in there. I hope. But not. this is one this I is one they can't duck. They they got to Yeah, no, they can't duck that. Um, you know, Roy Baumeister had this great work on Escape from the Self, and I can't help but think of this as just, you know, if this one of the reasons I like this show is because yeah, there's this the corporate angle, there's this identity angle, but there is really to me this Escape from the Self. This is Mm -hmm. is just another way of of doing what we do so often we find some way to deal with the, the, just the nature of existence by trying our best to blot out some of our experiences um, or change our consciousness um, in some way or another and this is like the ultimate escape yeah like the smallest example is when we look at our phone because we're feeling anxious for yeah, a second right. and so like we, we're just trying to escape dealing with like even the littlest things like just deadlines or you know, yeah. but I, some I, email. But I know what you're saying, but it seems different. So Boy, Baumeister talks about BDSM, or you're looking at your phone, or getting whipped, or intense exercise. But you aren't really escaping from yourself. You're you're throwing away all the sort of shit that surrounds yourself, that the self doubt, the humiliation, the feeling of of whatever. But the core of yourself, the sort of pearl, remains, and that's why you enjoy it. But this obliterates the self. So. If you look at your phone, you say, oh, that was kind of relieving, but you don't lose consciousness, I don't think. No, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, that's a good, right? Like, I suppose that one could could view escapes from the self as small steps in their direction of obliterating the self. And I think that's, this is the kind of like existential denial of death kind of thing where we really, really do want to obliterate yeah. ourselves secretly. But mm-hmm. all of the methods that we have for everyday life are just ones in which we can temporarily forget all of the things. Maybe this is just 
the extreme, extreme version. Right. Or maybe we're throwing out the baby it, it, into it's, the bathwater. We've even talked about a missing baby, which was seen at the end. But um, but but Mark, oh, yeah, right. but 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 Mark, in some way, Mark is committing suicide. It's that fifty percent suicide. Yeah. You're you're you know, you yeah. have your life, and you for half of your life, you're gone. You've lost half of your life. Now you've given birth to somebody else who experiences this yeah. life. Yeah, and that's why, like, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm amazed antinatalism hasn't come up yet, but it is kind of like that also thing. You're bringing an, if you buy that it's another self, you're bringing another self into the world that might be suffering. You don't know. Like, maybe it's great at work. There's some nice things. You get the dragon, uh, the, dra- the paper <laughs> the finger dragons, traps. finger uh, traps, yeah. if, uh, <laughs> you know, but you don't know. You have no idea. Waffle party seems pretty fucking You know, cool. like, um, <laughs> So, like, do you have a right to do that? Like, are you doing something good? Are you sacrificing your life so another person could live? You know, I thought we like, weren't talking about this in terms of rights, Tamler. Um, no, 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 right. Yeah. Is it <laughs> ought you to do that? Is it- <laughs> yeah. Uh, remember that there's a Borges quote that I love where he says, mirrors and copulation uh, or multiplies selves. Um, severance also multiplies the number of selves in the world. Right? You know, like, my whole thing where, like, it's okay to eat cows if they have a good life until they die. Like that's definitely what's happening here in the sense of you're creating these selves. They have their lives. Hopefully like you would want to ensure they're being humanely treated and maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but, and then they're going to die like, cause you're going to retire. And once you retire, as you said, Paul, yeah. they're dead yeah, or quit or whatever. And you know, interestingly, what you said made me think there is just a profound weird lack of empathy for the innie that the yeah. out the audi is callous and and see you know you could say well there are all these people working menial jobs that you don't care about well yeah they're not me um you you think i mean i don't say that i care about the workers <clears throat> but um people say that but it's odd even if you believe that it is a different person that you wouldn't kind of be curious to know whether you've created a happy one yeah you yeah you de- you won't know and if and Helly know- definitely know her Helly's Audi definitely knows that she's created a miserable one she's just sort of corporately motivated yeah but like you get the sense that that's what normally happens because um, they talk about like you can send a request but it doesn't usually work out so oh, you get the right. sense that that um, other people have tried it and this is kind of what normally happens. Yeah, it's like the Audi is like telling the innie, like, stop being a little bitch. We signed up for this. Like, do your yeah. work. <laughs> exactly. But that's just <laughs> slavery at that point. It's a pure you case know? of bringing somebody else into the world to do your bidding and then yeah. being indifferent to their fate. To their suffering, to their fate. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know if we know for sure that other people have gotten the videos because there's right. definitely some corporate malfeasance going on at Lumen. But but at least, we, yeah, and in Helly's case, they probably felt like they could do it because she's totally on board. It, it would surprise me if, you know, if Irv uh, got a video saying, please let me out, that he wouldn't have. But given that you're not even inquisitive about how you are in there, it does kind of feel like you're doing a disservice. And when you sign you. up, they have this this wonderful science fiction device where you can't write down anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and they take great steps to make sure you don't. And and you know, Mark tells Helly this story about it. You know, if you swallow something, they'll take it out of you. And yeah. And knowing, imagine knowing this, and yet signing up this other identity to experience it, to experience a place where they can't cry for help. 
Do you think, though, that they tell the Audis I, versions I that? Because they might not. No, that's right. You know, they might think, the Audis might just think, oh, I have no complaints, so it's probably good. Everything's going well in there, I guess. Parfit has this wonderful example, which is actually a very any Audi case, where he says, you know, you, you, you um, wake up from an operation and you're very groggy. You wake up in the hospital, right? And then the nurse comes by and says, and, and you know you're supposed to have this operation, but you're not sure whether you had it or you just slept because you're very grand. And the nurse says, well, um, one, we had somebody who had an operation that was extremely painful and it lasted 10 hours. Normally it lasts five hours. We're not sure whether you're the person who had this 10-hour extremely painful operation, which you then forgot, versus you have the five-hour operation coming up next. And part of its intuition and mine is you really want to be have it over with. You'd rather have 10 agonizing hours that you can't remember behind you than five hours in front of you. Oh, yeah. That's just yeah. like... For sure. <laughs> yeah, right. 100%. That's... It's like grading papers. It's like, <laughs> Better. Like, whatever you want to tell me, as long as the papers yeah. are done, oh, I don't care how I... long it took me. So to all of a sudden you remember, them. oh, yeah, I already did them, and it was horrible. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I fine. could temporarily create an any to grade papers... I would totally do it. <laughs> that's like absolutely that's do the it. worst. That's, that's <laughs> why you're doing it anyway. Psychotic thing. thing that you've no, ever said. If the task is not unethical, then you have two options. One, you do the work and remember it. Two, you do the work and don't remember it. But I, you're creating a self that's only the only thing they do is grade all these papers. But then they like stop existing. Like, what do you care? What if, what if you, what if you, I, like, what if you bring them back? I care because like, that's wrong to what do. What if you bring them back every semester? <laughs> Same self. So they go to the elevator, and then they come back God. and there's more papers. You're like, right, fuck They you. just finish the last paper and they think sweet annihilation, but then like the next second they're aware <laughs> yeah. of, they have to grade like 30 more papers. And they pray for you know, death. This is actually, okay, so does your yeah. intuition... <laughs> just pray. Does your they're intuition, just taking the pens and just jamming it into their wrist. So Dave records a like, video saying, <laughs> I will make sure you suffer. You're not a person grading. Every one of those papers. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's it's sort of like a um, memento guy tattooing messages to himself. Yeah. You know, yes. But there is you have pointed out that or in what you said, I think that there is part of it is driving our intuition is that the innies have a continuous identity. So yeah. if I'm creating the, the person to grade papers on one afternoon, to me, that's no different than popping in, you know, an ambient an equivalent. Ambient. And yeah. doing the work, and then and then that that if if I did create a different person, it's not really a person in the sense that there's no continuity to it's like it. Like a subroutine, it's just yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's like it's like forming a habit. But that's know? not how it is for the innies and well, that's why I'm saying that what yeah. what seems to be important to the intuition that it's wrong is that you're creating a persistent identity that every yeah. time they walk out of they are walking right back in. That yeah. seems yeah, that seems torture. That's that does seem torture. But if they were wiped and they woke up on a table every morning, and you just could get them right up to speed, um, that's less bad to me. They're, if they're a new if they're a new person every day, because then that new person yeah. has only experienced an eight hour workday. You know the other thing that I heard that this was inspired by is the back rooms. Do you know about the back rooms? No, it sounds dirty. It's no, it's like this. Uh, no, sex, no sex in the champagne room kind of thing. It's kind of an urban legend, but it's more of like, a, I don't know, it's called a creepy pasta, which <laughs> I don't I don't know what that you, is. You, you but it's apparently, oh, yeah. Oh, it's like a version of copy pasta. But 
Uh, yeah. No, it's like it's like this kind of thing that develops on Reddit where they it tell like it's an urban legend, but then it gets really well developed. Yes, the idea it, it is that, a version of copy pasta. I don't know what copy pasta is. Yeah, I don't know what copy pasta is. I just wanted to let our nerd viewers know. Okay, go. <laughs> and apparently, it was created. The original post was on 4chan. I'm just okay. seeing right now on Wikipedia. But it's this like you could take a wrong turn in your office and just get trapped. In like this just long row of desks and hallways and you're just like lost then. You, you'll never come out. And, and and I guess the writer said he was inspired by that idea of like all of a sudden you do something and then you get lost in the office and then the office is the rest of your life. That's how it is for them. Like just these this maze of offices yeah. and nothing outside it. No, they don't see, like we, we haven't said this, but they don't see daylight. You That's, know, they don't yeah. see, uh, like they're, they're down in the basement. So it, it's, you know, there's some hell imagery. Like they are, you know, seven floors down into the ground and their only life is the workplace. And like, it's like, that's, being, a, it's like being a postdoc. <laughs> it's like be, being a postdoc in Dave's lab. You should put that put that in your next ad. It's like it's like being an innie. Yeah, no, they, but that's like that's I think like what you're doing to this grader, to your grader or to your innie in this show is you're putting them in this kind of nightmarish scenario where like all they have is work and all the corporate bullshit that comes in, like the. You know, oh, we're gonna do this ball trust ball that I now roll to you and stuff like that. And so great! That's those like, scenes are so good. Like yeah, they're, like, they're so creepy in this way that just resonates. Every fucking ice warmer that you've ever yeah. been forced to sit through, it's just like distills it down to the. And and just the way that the person in power can move from <laughs> like really supportive and affirming to just threatening and yeah. you know like they can on a dime just switch to like and you ought to be grateful. I think <laughs> gratitude is a good feeling to have about that. Is your outrage, Tamler, and maybe Paul? Is it really about what they're doing? Like if they were just having playground time. Like and and like had a happy yeah. If they could have like a happy life, uh, doing you know if they were doing work that that fulfilled them maybe or and and having like relationships and I don't know and like they got to take time off like they got to go on vacations sometimes you know you'd have to sacrifice some of your vacations but I would do that for my any. Uh, That's right. If if you were severed into it, both the secrecy thing was true. And and you really, that was yeah. the reason, but it was a challenging job where you're treated with respect and it's interesting work. It doesn't pose the same moral puzzle. In some way, it would be like going to sleep and taking a pill to get certain sorts of dreams. Uh, so it's not the coercion per se that that bothers. It's the coercion yes. into the corporate dystopian nightmare. Well, it's it's not. Yeah, the, I mean, I think it's both, but yeah, yeah. It, it's not the it's there's coercion once you want the person wants to leave and are not allowed to. Right. Which is yeah. genuinely creepy. Right. Right. Um, so we should probably wrap up, but I do want to talk a little bit about the the aesthetics of this show, only just to register my appreciation yeah. for the design. Totally, it's just so well done, and like the the you one of you mentioned this before that they're in this like forced little four person cubicle kind of thing, even though there's all this room everywhere around them. I was reading that some of the stuff was made specifically for the show but some of the stuff they just like bought um office furniture from like eastern europe <laughs> and had it shipped over 
<laughs> it's it's also not particularly pleasant. Both the the innie scenes, but also the outie scenes are 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 not portrayed yes. as, as as pleasant or enjoyable. And, uh, yeah, I think, and I think it very much plays into the theme because we haven't talked about the outie world, but clearly there's there's something going on. Yes in the Audi world, but we get so little information yeah. about, like, we don't know what, we know that there's sort of political maneuvering that has allowed Lumen to make as much of a stamp on this city. We don't get the sense of whether this city is special or whether yeah. um, this is going on in other cities. You also don't get the sense of the scope of Lumen. Right. Like we know that there are at least a, f- a few departments, but we don't know, like, are there, is there stuff on the like fourth through 12th floors, we have no idea because we're so focused on this core group. The world building of it is dished out to you so sparingly that, and, and yeah. we still, after the whole first season, we still don't totally have a sense of what's going on. Can I ask you guys, what do you have any theories? Um, and, I, and I'll just offer like a preliminary, which is it seems to me that the work that is, so they have another department called Optics and Design, which just is in charge of like the various decorations for the drab basement office and what whatever it is they're doing it feels to me like lumen is beta testing this severance chip severance procedure mm-hmm. and what they've created is just these like really they just want to observe the people who have undergone the procedure and they're giving them jobs but those jobs aren't real in any in any sense their job is to be guinea pigs for the the new severance procedure that will be, as Tamler was saying earlier, will be sold to other people like, hey, imagine you can give birth without ever having to remember. And yeah. they feel like beta testers to me. I don't know. That's what I yeah, think. Maybe. And this is really like a psychology exper- experiment that they're doing to just to try to figure out like what is the innie going to be willing to do right. without like killing themselves or without harming themselves or, or raising like how much can we exploit them? So that would explain the otherwise odd coincidence of Mark's boss living next to him. That's yeah, right. well, and then there's something, and then so then I think there's also something about Mark where they're testing something particular to him about his wife. Like this is wild; it's probably not right, but the if they are kind of reviving or recreating his wife, is this a way to keep them happy, or do they retain enough personality where you know, like they will start a relationship huh. inside, and they seem to be testing that, you know, in the office or something with the two of them. I think think makes him of a special interest it's my guess but about irving we didn't talk about that we do see his audi painting these creepy the exact same painting yeah every time which is a very dark scene is it the entry um, into the break room it's the entry is yeah. it the break room is that's it, what i think it is yeah. the entry into the break room so uh, so there does seem to be some sort of subconscious leakage yeah. um yeah. from one to the other i think that's what that we're being told because also during his you know that one of the things they make fun of is an old man he he he's prone to falling asleep on the job um and he starts having these dreams of the dripping the dripping black ink that he uses for those paintings oh i didn't make the connection yeah, yeah some some sort of like uh it's not a perfect procedure i guess is what we're being being told it's amazing how little the show gave us. yes you know I love a show that also just does, it just thinks highly of the viewer. It doesn't, uh, doesn't patronize us with, with too much, um, explanation. 
Definitely. Not I feel as this is the kind of show that about six hundred people watch. <laughs> it's happy, you know, um, the, know. The right six hundred. Got a lot of prestige yeah. buzz. People yeah. seem to like it. I don't know. Maybe it's just the like places that I frequent. Well, they are renewing people it. Seem to and, watch. I think it's just on it because it's on Apple TV. I am sad that not more people probably have access to it. But Ben Stiller deserves a fucking. Just get it for a month. I mean, it's like yeah. five bucks, and yeah. then you can just binge and then you the show. Totally worth it. Binge the show and then get off before you find yourself watching Ted Lasso season two. I mean, maybe season two will be as good as Ted Lasso season two. It only. Oh only, God! Only, oh, I know. I know. Why I, would you say? I that? heard you guys. I heard you guys. I'm I'm more sympathetic <laughs> to the show. Oh, is it? it? You know, it grows increasingly bad in my memory. Um, and every time, yeah. <laughs> anytime someone brings up Ted Lasso season two, I have like a like whatever yeah. you know Mark has the leftover heartbeat from uh, from yeah. his being angry I want, inside. I've blocked. I wish I could have created an innie. <laughs> season two. Then it would be ethical. The solution. Yeah. Imagine if you guys could have a, a, a podcast self, which constantly endlessly. <laughs> I know. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Would I do that to my podcast self? Like their only existence is having to deal with. <laughs> you know, you, you switch, you switch yeah. it off, and there you are. You're like, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, wait, I'm done with this episode. Finally, he was being such a fucking pain in the ass. And then oh, it's like, shit. Welcome, welcome to, to Very Bad Wizards. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to round things off, by the way, the music is great. I, I, I actually have, oh, I, I, so good. I have, I have, yeah. like, it's on, it's on totally. Spotify, and I listen to it as I work. The, the instrumental. Oh, I meant to do to try to make a beat out of my oh. intro. Maybe I'll do. Oh, that. that'd be great. Yeah, it's yeah. So good, so well done. Just TV is so good. Do you remember yeah. in the eighties <laughs> no, like, how bad ridiculous. TV was? The quality of like the just the filmmaking yeah. and the yeah. sound and everything. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's just it's it's it really is a golden age of. Uh, well, so. From Magnum PI. <laughs> well, them Duke boys have really got themselves into a pickle this time. <laughs> oh, now I want to watch it. Go back and watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be good. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, Paul. No, thank you. This was great. great. Nice to have a show to love. And listen, they, better not, yeah. they better not fuck it up for season two. You're talking about very bad wizards, right? Of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> We're now the second best That's thing right. on the internet after <laughs> severance. Yeah. 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 All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Drunk. It's drunk. Se- very drunk sex. Like uh, black very, sex. Very, very, very drunk sex. They don't address this. And I like I should have said this on the episode. But like if I was in there, I would just jerk off like eight times a day. And then yeah. so that the Audi like couldn't get it up. <laughs> like exactly with his wife. That's, that's that's the most sinister thing I've ever heard of. Oh, why is it sore? <laughs> I was looking forward to, to tonight. That, that's how the Indy gets back. Yeah. On that. No wonder his love life on the outside is so terrible. He just he has post nut clarity for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> he just doesn't know why.
just a very bad wizard.